I know there's certain nervousness about athletics this, this morning, and I sense that, and I know it's ESPN does not show college wrestling a lot, but today at 2, Iowa, no, that's not what we're, okay, all right, a little big sports week. What do we do with this passage? What do you do with this? There's so much here we could spend weeks just verse by verse. We're going to try to touch on as much of it as we can uh, this morning. We're certainly going to talk about our response to Christ, and that's kind of sometimes where we land. We just we're known by, sadly, what we do. We meet somebody. What's the first thing you asked me, Sandy, when you met me? You said, how is it with your soul? No, that's not what you ask somebody the first time you meet a guy. When you meet a guy, what do you ask him? What do you do? Uh, and so we're going to look at the work of Christ, what he does for us, what he has accomplishes and continues to do but we also want to take time, as Corey talked about this morning, just to look at who he is, just to glory. As we, we approach Advent, as we approach Christmas, to pause and just glory in who it was that was born at Christmas. But let's begin talking about the work of Christ, and then we're going to talk about how we respond. What's that work he wants to do? Because that's typical for Paul, too. You go back to Ephesians, he talks in the first couple of chapters deep theology about our position in Christ, and then he's going to take the next couple of chapters to talk about the practice of the believer because we're in Christ. He does the same thing in Romans 1 through 11, this deep theology about us being saved in grace, and then, and then starting in chapter 12, what we're to do about it. And you're going to see it here. The supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ in these first two chapters. But then we're going to get to three and four and, and be asked, now what about you? What about your submission to his supremacy? Your submission uh, to his kingship? So let's spend some time as we, as we glory in him, but just look at what he does. Let's just go, keep your Bibles open. We'll just walk through this, 15 through. It starts out saying in this passage, he shares with us the very image of the invisible God. Again, in that culture of that day to say to a Jew, yes, we were made in the image of God, but he is the image they would have lost their minds over that claim. But then in 15 and then going down to verse 18, not only does he share the very image of the invisible God, but he is the firstborn. He's the firstborn from the very beginning of creation as well as those from the dead who are resurrected. He's the firstborn there. Verse 16, he is creator. Now, Gnosticism was not big at this point, but they would have lost their minds when they read these words later that Jesus is creator. But the Greek philosophy of that day had all kinds of myths about creation. One has a bird sitting on an egg. Another has a creator, a man with a creator, with a mother earth making creation. Then there's all kinds of stories. They would have lost their mind over a sole author of creation. The Eastern mysticism of that day would have pushed back and said, no, creation is nothing but a, an accident. It's an accidental lower vibration. He, him alone, created all Things and in him all things. Verse 17, 
hold together. It is a right hook to every religious thought when it comes to creation. It's Jesus Christ who is over all creation. It's Jesus Christ who's over all things, every throne. And then you get to verse 18. Not only do all things in creation hold together through him, but he is also head of the church. He's head of the body and is to have first place in everything. And then lastly, this work, and I say lastly, but it is the first thing. Uh, verse 19, his great work of reconciling us through his blood, through his cross. Again, Jews would have pushed back on that. Yes, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, but, but, but what we're thinking about Messiah, that wouldn't happen. Again, the Greeks hated the flesh. Are you telling me somebody came and lived perfectly in the pl- flesh? No, all would have pushed back. But here is the beauty and the mystery of the gospel, that God took on flesh and he bled for the guilty. It's what Paul said to the Corinthians. It is this cross, this Messiah, that is a stumbling block to the Jews and to the Greeks' foolishness. But it shows his supremacy, his preeminence. This is the work of of our Savior. But what I want us to look at this morning is just to spend some time remembering who he is. It's why we took, I think, seven and a half minutes this morning to recite the Nicene Creed. It's about what it took. But it celebrates that wonderful paragraph, not just of the work of Jesus Christ, what he has done, what he desires to do. We'll talk about that and end with that. But it speaks of who he is. It speaks not just of the work of Christ, but the dual natures of Christ. And we're reminded of that in our passage uh, today. We're reminded of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Verse 19, all the fullness. Sometimes we'll say of Jesus Christ that he was fully God, fully man. I have watched a YouTube video of two theologians battling it out this week, John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul, a video from years ago, obviously, but of of R.C. correcting John. No, it's not fully God. He's truly God and truly man, and to watch them battle over that. I love what our catechism says. Jesus is one person whom the divine and human natures are perfectly and inseparably united. As we move towards Advent, as we move towards Christmas, to remind ourselves again, the babe born in that manger was God himself. All the fullness, all the fullness. But he wasn't just God, truly God. But this verse 19 reminds us again that he was fully human. To dwell in him, how do we know he was human? Having made peace through the blood of the cross. This is what C.S. Lewis calls, when he speaks of the incarnation, the grand miracle. That God himself became one of us. The one who is the beginning and the end. The one who is king of all kings took on human flesh. Or as Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, says, when they, when they got to that manger, yes, he was fully God. Yes, he was truly God. But what they saw was an infant struggling to work, never before used lungs. He was one of us. He entered into us. The Most High was brought down low, shackled by the restraints, the shocking restraints and limitations of humanity, even to the point that he bleeds and he 
dies. So we just want to glory in that this morning. We talked last week that there were some issues in this church. We're going to see it in chapter 2 and 3. There were some issues in this church where maybe they were about to be tempted by other ideas, other theologies, other philosophies. And guys, we know we're grounded in his word. We're grounded in Christ. But we are bombarded with ideas every day. And it can come to us over our watches, over our phones, over the radio, over the so many ways in which we're bombarded by different worldviews all the time. And so that's why we just simply in these verses just want to look at Jesus. Because if we'll look at him, really I heard a seminary professor say 30 years ago, if we'll just look at him in this passage and make sure we understand he's truly God, truly human, we're good. Because all heresies really come from either an overemphasizing his deity, that he is, he is God, but he, he really wasn't one of us. Or we emphasize his humanity and say, what a great philosopher, what a great leader. But don't ever think for a minute he's actually God. He's just enlightened. All, all heresies just veer off from this central truth that we get here. And then if you want to flip over to 2, 9 through 10, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. So when you get into chapter 2 and they're worried about angels, just look to Jesus. When you get into chapter 2 and they're talking about asceticism or philosophy issues, look to Jesus. When they start to argue about food laws or circumcision, look to Jesus in whom the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form. He is the answer. He is the one. He, this great truth always on our minds. I don't know if I've shared this before, uh, but a couple of y'all were having surgeries early one morning, uh, and it was a really rainy day, and I think it was a 5.30 surgery. There was two of y'all. One was up on Lakeland, one was down Lakeland, one was at St. Dominic's or Baptist, and I was coming down I-55 South, dark, rainstorm, and I just noticed, I don't know why it caught my attention, but I knew this, there was a big truck beside me, but to the right of me, uh, there was a little curb. Somewhere there on the interstate was either a wall or a curb, but I just, for some reason, I was very aware of my surroundings, and I'm glad I was, because a truck carrying logs, a log fell off the back of the truck in front of me. Now, where do you go with that at 55 or 60 in a rainstorm and you can't see? I could have gone left, and hurt that person. I could have gone right, but at that speed, everything just kind of slows down for a second. Do you hit that curb and flip? And so I just hit the brakes and hoped I could slow down in time, which I did not. And I hit that thing uh, probably going about 50 miles an hour. I'd slow down just a second. And I mean, I hit it. I went up in the air over that huge tree, which I had to move off the, the interstate after. This huge tree went up probably a couple of feet flew through the air, hit the ground, and then crushed the front of the car and slid into the wall uh, off the interstate. Now, in the middle of that craziness and chaos, what are you thinking about in that moment? Are you thinking, Lord, protect me, keep me safe? Not me. In that moment, are you thinking, Lord, I've got to protect the people around me? No, not me. Are you thinking some bad words? I didn't do that either. There's a lot you could think about in that moment. What are you thinking about? You know what I really said? 
This is, I said three words over and over again, while in flight, by the way. Not the Fusion. We had just bought a Ford Fusion for my daughter. I don't know why I was driving her car that day, but just the fear of my daughter. It wasn't the fear of death or meeting my maker, crashing into other people. My sole concern in that moment, not her car, not her car. Just, just keep him before you. The glory of who he is. All the ideas we're bombarded with, we keep his deity, his humanity before us. And when we get into how is it we respond to him, just keep him before you, as Corey said this morning. You know, we, he is the creator of all things, yes, but he's the giver of all gifts. So we talk about our response to him. And I want to look at these two words. We have a little bit of time this morning. I want to look at these two words I told you to go home and do homework on. Maybe you didn't do it, but the words all and the, the word all and the word in in Colossians. What Paul says, because of who he is, this one who accomplished on the cross through his blood for us, the one who is truly God, truly human, because of that, what's the right response to that? And you look at these words, just looking at our passage here. How many times do you see the word all for Jesus? It's a perfect passage for Christ as King Sunday. Seven different times I see it. And I think even Paul throws in in everything as well. Christ is over all. Christ will be in all. He is our all in all. Over all. Listen, we have a culture that sometimes can be obsessed with hobbies of getting all things. When I was a kid, it was baseball cards. I wanted all my Phillies. I wanted every card of every one. During COVID, I watched our students go crazy, drive thousands of miles to go to Pokestops to get all the Pokemon and Pokemon Go. We want to get them all. What Paul's saying to the church here about Jesus Christ is he is over all. All, all. And the good news is, because of that word in, because verse 16, he's creator in heaven and earth, because in him, verse 17, all things hold together and just keep going on and on in everything he can have first place, he can do that work in you. He's over all, and because he, his spirit is in us, there's no telling what he can gift to us or church, hear me, especially as we look at chapter 3, what he can help us take off or to put off, as Paul says. Christ is King Sunday, and in Colossians 1, we remember that Christ is over all. Christ is in all. And it comes to us, will we let him be that? He's over all creation, over all thrones, over all rulers. Well, will I submit and allow him to have all of my friendships? Church, can he, does he have all of your friendships? Does he have all of your anxieties and your worries or just some of them, but you're holding some back for yourself? Does he have all of your decisions or some of your decisions? Does he have your parenting? Does he have your marriage? Does he have your recreation? What Paul is saying to the church is you can't come to him and say, I'll give you my Sunday morning, but I won't give you my work. 
I'll give to you my service, but I'm not forgiving so-and-so. I'll give to you some, some dollars. I'll take my kids to church, but don't ask me to say a word for you. Christ is all, and he comes for all. Praise God he comes for all. Are you holding something back? Are you saying, I'd rather have that, or as we heard beautifully sung this morning, I'd rather have Jesus than anything else. And Jesus, I want you to have all. I love the prayer. I love the prayer. As you flip over to chapter 4, this little prayer for Epaphras, he's always praying for the church, that they'd stand perfect, that they'd be holy, they'd be mature, they'd be righteous, they'd be clean, they'd be pure. But I want you to know, be assured in, be confident in, that you are in all of God's will. That's my prayer for us as a church. We be in all of God's will. To pray for my family, for my friendships, for my work, for my recreation. Would you be in all? That the Son of God, we're going to believe what he says in chapter 1, he can reconcile all things. Paul is shouting about the supremacy of Christ. Over and over again, heaven and creation and thrones and rulers. But what about you and what about me? Does Christ have all this morning? And so you can pray where you are. As always, this altar is open. Is there something? As you get to chapter 3, there's reminders here that things need to be put off or things need to be put to death, as chapter 3 reminds us. If there's some things that maybe need to get put to death this morning so Christ would have all, this altar rail, and I call it that. We call this the altar But I love when John Oswalt reminds us that the Wesleyan movement decided this is not really altar anymore. We're going to move the altar here. This is the altar rare because that's where things come to die. There are things that need to die this morning. Uh, Whether it is chapter 3, those things like sexual immorality, slander, obscene talk, coveting, whatever that is, does something need to come to die? Or more importantly, going down, or just as importantly, going down in chapter 3, or there's some things that you've not trusted God to help him put on to you. A kindness, forgiveness, bearing with, patience. There's something to be received this morning. Or maybe it's for the first time to say yes to Jesus Christ. That, Lord, I've, I, have, I have not allowed you to reconcile me. I've not made you king of my life, savior of my life. You can come here. You pray where you are. I'd love to pray with you afterwards uh, in the prayer room. We can do that, talk with you this week. But as we come to this passage, this beautiful passage over who Jesus is, Paul is reminding us again, he is over all. And praise God, he wants to be over every part of your life. And he wants you to give him every part of your life. You need to do that this morning. Pray where you are. This altar's open. It's 607. All to Jesus, I surrender. Let's stand together as we respond and as we sing.